welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Lauren Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Welcome back, guys. It's good to have you after a few weeks away. It's our first pod of the new year, and Lauren and Stephen have spent the past few weeks uh, speaking with investors and bankers about what they are looking for in 2022 for our annual BuySiders pick story and the 2022 financial markets preview. We'll get to that in a minute. We'll also take a temperature check on the active partnership. That's the Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions in Vaccines group, which is managed by the foundation for the NIH. The group is evolving to meet COVID's challenges, and Steve will be bringing us up to speed on that. We'll also take a look at what might be in store for Biogen and other monoclonal antibodies for Alzheimer's disease as CMS gets ready to drop the word on its national coverage determination. And Steve has been busy rifling through some filings about corporate donations to various lawmakers. But first, it's J.P. Morgan Monday. The conference went virtual this year, meaning those of us in the Bay Area don't need to share our beloved city with anyone else. And we can still afford to buy coffees this week rather than shell out the $50 healthcare conference special uh, latte. Usually we see some billion dollar deals to get the industry rolling into the new year. Uh, Highlight a couple of years ago, I believe, was the the BMS Celgene acquisition at around $70 billion. Lilly has been quite active in recent years. This year's felt a little bit quiet, and I'm seeing a few people tweet that, well, the conference is already over. But Lauren, uh, on our editorial call this morning, you, you had a few interesting comments. We, we did see quite a few deals. What trends were you seeing? Yeah, so there hasn't been that big acquisition this year, but there has been a lot of excitement around new modalities. From our list of the top deals announced today in terms of upfronts, all are sort of research collaboration deals focused on, or almost all are research collaboration deals focused on on new modality technologies. There are a few in the gene editing space. Beam and Pfizer, I think, is getting the most attention. There is also Mammoth and Bayer. Moderna and BioNTech are, are both bringing in cool new technologies that are complemented by their mRNA platforms. There were a few cell therapy deals. This could be interesting just because we aren't seeing those big acquisitions, but it also could be the big buyers doubling down on these innovative new technologies from the start. Lauren, just I was thinking about this and wondering whether, given the research kind of nature of these deals, do you think it's fair to say that these are the big farmers kind of test driving these new modalities rather than maybe looking to buy yet? Are they, are they looking to sort of rent these? I'm just wondering how we should maybe think about that. I think so. I mean, this type of deal isn't unusual. What's unusual is the fact that it's sort of all that we're seeing today for, mm. for a JP Morgan Monday. And 
I think the pharmas test a, a bunch of different technologies across the new modality spaces in general. It's just we're seeing a lot of it today. We do know that this is a time of year where we see a lot of the external innovation, which means farmers going out and making a lot of early stage deals. Let's not forget, Novartis very recently made a deal with Alnylam on a compound where the target was actually developed by Nibba. So we do know that there is a certain amount of internal innovation going on. And in that case, they're actually tapping a farmer for their modality expertise. So Stephen, I, I think you're going to see the whole gamut of things. I think you're going to see some farmers who've got a certain amount of, let's just call it new modality expertise, whether it's gene therapy, cell therapy, nucleic acids, accessing targets either from other biotechs or internally. And I think it's going to become a very modular game actually at this point. And we've heard the CEO of Novartis say this, he says, we just want to find out what is the best way to treat a specific disease. And then we're going to enable that by finding the target and the modality, either internally or externally. Lauren, you, you mentioned Moderna and, and BioNTech. And I'm wondering if we're going to start seeing a lot of activity from these companies that have reaped the rewards of having developed effective vaccines and therapies for COVID. They've got an awful lot of cash now. I think that's the expectation. I mean, Pfizer was also one of the biggest deals today. I think people might have been expecting to see even more from these companies. And I think they'll have to do something with this cash. And Stephen, back to your point, I think another reason that these are research collaborations is not just that the farmers are testing the waters before making a big buy. These are just preclinical technologies that are getting a lot of attention. Base editors aren't in the clinic yet, mRNA encoded antibodies in vivo car therapies, which is what Moderna is working on with Charisma. These are just early stage technologies that have a lot of promise, and this is a chance to get in early. Yeah, I that's, think that's can, a good point. One. I think taking a step back, we can really say that a lot of the farmers have shed their stodgy image or approach, tiptoeing into things. Generally, there used to be this feeling that they took a very long time to get on board. And right now they're out ahead of the game or getting ahead of the game. We also saw Takeda do its second deal in Gamma Delta T-cell technology. That's its second deal. There are a lot of biotechs with Gamma Deltas. And Takeda, I believe, is one of the most front-runner farmers in that game. So certainly it looks like the pharma companies are really keen to access non-validated technologies, targets, and presumably they're not putting that much money into it, or they've got enough money that they can afford to do this. So it's not a massive risk on their part. Probably the amount of time and money they spend managing the projects is more the risk. All right. Well, let's jump over to our buy side picks. Now, this annual issue, we always release right around the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. And we've been doing it for nearly 30 years, as long as BioCentury has been around. As I mentioned, Lauren and Stephen have been chatting with BuySiders for weeks and weeks now to get a sense of what to look out for this year. Lauren, what, what is top of mind among investors? There were two big trends from the investor picks and the catalysts for this year. The first was a carryover from last year is just this broad optimism around neurology assets. 
the trigger for that was the Agihelm decision, even though it was controversial and the drug hasn't performed that well yet. Investors still believe it will have impacts on other beta amyloid MAVs that can potentially follow down the same accelerated approval path. And just it's gotten people excited about neurology in general. I think everyone is watching the three most advanced MAVs in that category. And there are a couple other readouts and other indications too. The other thing that I found really interesting was the excitement around immuno-oncology, which I feel like has died down a little bit during the past few years. Right after the Keytruda approval, there was so much excitement around IO and it seemed like you know a huge chunk of the industry was, was pivoting and putting a ton of resources into finding the next checkpoint inhibitors and combination therapies to make the PD-1 antibodies effective for more people. That excitement sort of died down for a little while as it's taken longer than expected to get to those next generation therapies. But it seems like 2022 could bring the start of that new IO revolution. The big milestones for this year are, I think, the, the relatlimab PDUFA date. That's the anti-LAG3 antibody from BMS, which doubled progression-free survival in first Lyme melanoma patients over Opdivo alone. And if approved, it would be the first new checkpoint target to reach the market since the PD-1s and the PDL-1s. Then there's the Tidget story, which also looks like a promising checkpoint. There should be a few data readouts for the most advanced, Tiragolimab from Genentech, which has phase three results coming this half, I think. And then the other IO area that's ripe for change is the bispecific antibodies. It seems like every year people are saying that this is going to be the year the bispecifics break through. There are a couple PDUFA dates this year. There's a, a BCMA bispecific from Janssen that looks interesting. You know, it could be the start of something new for IO. Yeah. So a couple of points, by the way, I just want to on the record for 25 years, I've been saying this is the year that Neuro will take off. So <laughs> year I'm going to be right about that. And I'm sure there's other people there. But on the IO front, I just wanted to confirm what you mean, because I don't think it's globally that IO has died down in the last few years. It's more like innovation. I mean, there's been a, we've written and people have talked about this endlessly, like PD-1s. There's been a lot of activity and everybody flooding after PD-1s. But the complaint has been, which I think is what you're getting at, that where's the successor, right? We exactly. had CTLA-4 and so on. The market, the, the market of IO therapies has sort of, Oh, there have been CAR-T therapies that have been approved in the past couple of years. They are still working through market access issues. But in general, we've had the same checkpoint inhibitors on the market for seven years now. Well, uh, not a ton of regulatory advances. Well, I think it was also because, I mean, I remember talking to investors seven years ago, and they thought it was going to be relatively easy to get those yeah. next combinations going, you know, because you had the CTLA-4 came and then that was a success. And then PD... PD-1 came, that was a success. And so it just seemed like, okay, we'll just find the next one and add it on and then it should keep working. But then IDO failed and ICOS failed and you can count them off. We need more than two hands to do it on all the ones that have been problem areas. So um, yeah, I think it's really cool actually to see uh, IO kind of re-emerging, right? Because I mean, that was seven years ago. That's when every cancer company transformed into an IO company overnight. Yeah, exactly. And there's a ton of innovation in IO. I didn't mean that that, that has slowed down or, or mm, died down right. at all. It's, it's just, just, you know, it's all, it's all phase one. <laughs> yeah. It's been a lot more difficult than people thought. That's, that's biotech, right? It's really important what you're saying, especially if it happens, because 
We have sat down with leaders of major companies who've told us that they're just waiting to see something really new in I.O. or rather in checkpoints, not necessarily in all of I.O., but in checkpoints. A lot of skepticism, really, that it would go beyond PD-1. So I don't know, Stephen, whether it's going to be like the next one approved and then everyone thinks, oh, now it's easy, like you just said. I don't think it will be easy. I just think that seven years ago, that was the initial perception, right? Was that, well, we'll just keep adding these on. But obviously that's proven to be a lot more difficult. That's why I'm saying I think it's cool that we're finally starting to see some progress again. Yeah, kind of uh, Simone's comment brings to mind that scene in the brilliant Pixar movie, The Incredibles. Obviously, these are superheroes living secret lives as normal human beings, but they're not quite normal. And every time the humongous Hulk-like dad leaves for work, there's a little boy at the end of the driveway and he's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm, I'm just waiting for something incredible to happen. And of course, he gets his wish at the end of the movie. I won't spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it, but maybe it'll be that sort of year for this space. Steve, I know you very much have COVID countermeasures on the mind, uh, having just worked on the active story stories, I should say. Lauren, Stephen, are, are you hearing anything about important milestones this year for COVID countermeasures? Or Steve, was there anything that you were hearing in reporting your story? Yeah, I don't know if investors are as focused on it, in part because the EUA process is a lot less predictable than the normal PDUFA process. But I certainly think we're going to see progress in COVID therapies this year. We're going to see some EUAs for monoclonal antibodies that are capable of standing up to Omicron and and other variants. I think we might see them actually sooner rather than later. And I think that we're also going to see therapies receiving emergency use authorizations for both inpatient and outpatient treatment along the whole spectrum of COVID. And given the scale of the demand and the need, I would imagine that those are going to be not only really important for individual patients and for public health, but I think there are also going to be really large market opportunities. I would think investors would be pretty interested then, because I think that's what they'll be focusing on, what the market opportunity is. Having looked at what Pfizer was able to bring in with its $36 billion in revenues for a vaccine, that's what the primary focus here is, is how are you going to apply these? And maybe that's where the outpatient is, is of particular interest. It's really the third leg of the stool. I mean, obviously, vaccines have changed the disease. I think it's also fair to say that diagnostics even though they're flawed right now, they're still allowing a completely different way of ending isolation early or getting into places and out of places. And then just imagine if you had the ability to pop a pill once you did get diagnosed, those therapies will be long-term, right? They'll keep being needed. So I can imagine investors would be pretty excited about them when they start to show. There is always this question of, is this going to be a 10-year timeline? I don't think that's going to excite too many people at the moment. So they have to get them through fast. All right. Well, Lauren's story, the buy side preview is up on biocentury.com. And for those of you who are big fans of Nash or who believe that kidney is the new black, don't worry. She didn't forget about you. There's some tasty tidbits in there. And we'll drag Stephen back on next week to dig a little bit deeper into our 2022 preview. 
Stephen, any quick tease on what you're looking into for the financial markets preview? Some thoughts on valuations and maybe some warnings around IPOs. Yeah, the IPO scene. I spoke to a bunch of investors at the end of the year and they were talking about holding back some of their big companies that were ready to go public and take kind of a wait and see approach. So I uh, look forward to reading your piece, Stephen. And speaking of neurology milestones, we have our first big one coming up in really a matter of days now. And that is the Medicare Judgment Day for Aduhelm. CMS, which generally hues to FDA's approvals, is currently waiting Aduhelm and other products in the class in a national coverage determination. I believe the due date for the preliminary draft is the 12th. Steve, how should uh, investors be thinking about this, investors and our readers in general? I certainly am not going to put myself out there predicting what CMS is going to do. If CMS follows precedent, as you mentioned, they're going to cover Adjuhelm for the FDA label. But I would also say that nothing about Adjuhelm or the Alzheimer Mabs has fit with precedent. So there's no real reason to believe that CMS is going to do that. There's certainly under a lot of pressure, both from physicians, from the public health community, to do something other than simply cover Adjuhelm for the FDA-approved label. They've got a lot of opportunities to do something less than that. And if I were going to bet on it, I would expect that they're going to do something less than covering it for the full label. Separately, it's interesting to note that HHS Secretary Becerra put out a statement this morning saying now that Biogen has cut the price in half, Becerra said, you know what, it's time to look at the premium for Part B and probably reduce that. It's also important to note, I think, that CMS's national coverage determination for Adjuhelm is not associated with the cost. They're, by law, they're not allowed to take the cost into consideration. So I think there's been some speculation out there that Biogen's cutting the price of Adjuhelm will somehow influence the NCD. It's not supposed to work that way, and I, and I don't think it actually will. All right. Thanks for that, Steve. It's something we've clearly been following for a while. Uh, my colleague, Selena Koch, has done an excellent series of stories on Adjuhelm, all of which are available on our website. And most recently, she had a piece on this pending decision, which you can track down. I believe we ran it last Thursday. Steve, I'd like to stay with you. Um, two big stories last week, touching on what Active is up to. Obviously, a lot of us hoped after science, biotechs, pharmas work together to get a vaccine done in historically fast time. Here we are into the latest waves of the pandemic. And what does this mean for Active? What are they thinking about what's next? Well, you know, we've discussed this on the podcast before, and Simone has written stories about it. The idea that vaccines were going to tame the pandemic was never realistic. Therapies would always be needed for a variety of reasons. And, and I think it's also clear that there's not going to be a silver bullet. It's not going to be just one therapy, no matter how good it is. Operation Warp Speed, which is now called the Countermeasures Acceleration Group, 
spent most of its time and money on vaccine development, and that's what got all of the attention. But there was always a parallel government effort to develop COVID therapies. The most important part of this was ACTIVE, which stands for the Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines Public-Private Partnership. It's run by the Foundation for NIH and includes NIH, 20 biopharma companies, and um, academic scientists. It's still hard at work running adaptive master protocol trials, testing a wide range of potential COVID therapies. In my stories, I describe the therapies that have graduated from active trials and NIH-associated trials, and then gone on to receive emergency use authorizations. These include um, remdesivir, several monoclonal antibodies, and other treatments. And I describe therapies that are in the active pipeline that might help COVID patients in the future, some of them, I think, in the very near future. Steve, one of the things that I thought was really interesting in your story was the role that ACTIVE can play in allowing comparisons between different therapies, something no single company is particularly motivated to do necessarily. So can you just tell us a little more about that and where you see it going? Well, so that was really interesting. When I, I spoke with Clifford Lane, who is in charge, he's really on the front lines of, of all of the therapeutic development at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH. I also spoke with the um, acting director of NCATS, the National Center for Translational Sciences at NIH, and with Stacey Adam from the uh, Foundation for NIH. One of the things that they said is that they were kind of disappointed that companies like Pfizer and Merck decided to develop their antivirals outside of Active, but they pointed out that both Pfizer and Merck used endpoints that were consistent with Active's. So the trial results from the antivirals that those two companies have developed are comparable to the other therapeutic candidates that have gone through Active and that other companies have done on their own that are consistent with the Active endpoints. That's really important because in a lot of diseases, companies use different endpoints for trials, and it's very difficult to compare the safety of efficacy across those trials. That's one of the reasons also that I thought it'd be very interesting to see if this could create some kind of template or model. We had Richard Pasta talk to us at the end of December, where he's very frustrated because in the PD-1 field, he'd like to see comparisons between the different products. Again, no single company is motivated to do that. But if you could have a public-private partnership or some kind of entity that can take this on, it really provides value, I think, to physicians, to people treating with the medicines. It would be interesting to see if anyone can pick up on that and use it beyond COVID. Yeah, definitely. That was one of the things that I mentioned in the story that Cliff Lane mentioned in particular, is hope that the infrastructure that has been created for COVID will persist and will be used to study potential therapies for other infectious diseases going forward, including those that have pandemic potential. All right. Well, Steve has two stories up on our website. Do check them out. I'm personally very excited to hear that those companies who, while they're not inactive, are at least in sync in terms of the endpoints, which hopefully will keep things on track. Let's take a step back now. We are a few days after the anniversary of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Around that time, we saw many lawmakers vote against certifying the presidential election results. After that time, we saw a lot of biopharma companies hit pause on their donations to various lawmakers. 
at this one-year anniversary. Steve, I know you wanted to take a bit of a look at where things stand. What did you find out? As you said, I found out that many, probably virtually all of the companies that are making political campaign contributions, all the biopharma companies, put out statements either to their own employees or to the public saying that they'd halted contributions to members who had voted against certifying the 2020 presidential election. And then most of them said that they would be reevaluating their contribution strategies going forward. So I looked at the 15 biopharma companies with the largest U.S. revenues and what they did over the last year. It turns out that nine of them have resumed contributions to members who voted against certifying the election. More than 25 of the 147 members of Congress who voted against certifying the election have received contributions from biopharma companies over the last year. Some of the contributions went to members of Congress who have strongly supported the former president's contention that President Biden's not a legitimate president. Devin Nunes, Steve Scalise, Kevin McCarthy have all received contributions from biopharma companies. I was honestly um, somewhat surprised by some of that. Steve, did the companies have any comments for you? Oh, yeah. Uh, Some of the companies did. Some of the companies weren't willing to comment. Most of the companies that did uh, comment said that something to the effect that they'd pause their contributions, they'd reassess them, and that they were contributing to candidates who support their overall values and the development of medicines, something like that. It is also important to note that there were six of the top 15 companies that haven't resumed their contributions to members who refused to certify the the 2020 elections. They also didn't want to make public statements, but some of them said to me privately, basically, you know, our actions speak louder than words. Yeah. And That list includes Astellas, AstraZeneca, Sanofi, Takeda, and also Pharma, the trade group. Well, that story will be going up today on biocentry.com, so you'll be able to dig into Steve's reporting. Thanks all for joining today. And next week, a reminder here in the U.S., we take a day off in honor of Martin Luther King. So our podcast will be coming to you on Tuesday the 18th instead of Monday the 17th. Tune in next week for part two of our financial markets preview. Stephen will return to talk IPOs, talk about other macro trends that he is following. And coming in the next couple of days, as well as today, you'll be seeing our analysis of the JP Morgan deals that Lauren and Stephen and Simone were discussing at the top of the show. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.